Blessing over the bread. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz. We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atarunai Eloheinu melech olam. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Amen. All of that. <laughs> now, husbands, if you will bless your wives. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for the wonderful wife that you've given me. And Father, we thank you and I pour out a blessing upon all the wives on this Sabbath day. I pray that you bless her, strengthen her, and encourage her as she rises in the night to see about the ways of the household. And I pray that you strengthen her as she teaches and educates our children. Father, I pray that you pour out your very best blessing upon her and that you would encourage her in everything that she does. Let her know how worthy of praise and honor that she is. And Father, I confess with all of my heart that I love her and I thank you, Lord, for her. We also bless all of the widows and orphans, those without a father or a husband at this time as well. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. All right, now let's bless our sons. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. Amen. 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 Let's bless our daughters. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ruth and as Esther. Amen. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shalom. Please join us for the Baruchu, the call to worship. Baruchu et Aronai Hamvorach. Baruch Aronai Hamvorach Leolam Vaed. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michamocha. Michamocha ma'elim Adonai Michamocha nedar ba'kodesh Norat e'ilot osef Oh, who is like you, O oh Lord, among the gods? 
hands. Who is like you, Lord, there is none else. You are awesome in praise, doing wonders, O Lord. Who is like you, O Lord? Amen. And now the blessing of Messiah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam asher natan lanu et derech ha-Yeshua ba-Mashiach Yeshua. Altogether, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Vishamru. Vishamru v'nei Yisrael et ha-Shabbat. La'asot et ha-Shabbat l'adoratam barit olam. B'nei uvayan b'nei Yisrael oti le'olam. Keshashet yamin asa Aronai et hashamayim va'et haralets uvayom hashvi'i shvat vayinefash. Altogether, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema. If you would all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad Baruch Shem Kevod Mahuto Le'olam va'ed Yeshua HaMashiach Hu Adonai Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be His name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'ahavta. Ve'ahavta et Aronai Elochecha. Bechol levavcha, uvchol nafshecha, uvchol meyodecha. Vahayu hadevarim ha'alei asher anochi mitzavcha hayom al levavcha. Vashinantam levanecha, v'debartabam, v'shivtecha b'bethcha, uvlechtecha v'derech, uvshuchbecha, uvkumicha. Uksartam leot al yedecha, vahayu letotafot benanecha. Uktaftam al mezuzot betecha uvisharecha. Altogether, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen. For all our days, Lord, that we would praise you, that we would sing of your glory, Yahweh Elohim.
Shalom, everyone. Welcome to our Arab uh, Shabbat broadcast here at B'nai Shalom. Uh, this Sabbath, we are in the next to the last portion of Leviticus. It's called Bahar, uh, which means uh, uh, in the mount or on the mount. And it's making reference to some instructions that God gave to Moses, a continuing set of instructions that we have here in Leviticus. And last Sabbath, in the portion we were covering, we were talking about God's commandments for the Moedim, the appointed times. And in that portion, it, it gave us from the Sabbath all the way to Passover, all the way through the seven feasts, Levitical feasts, all the way to tabernacles, and was giving instructions on how those were to be observed as the festivals of Israel and, and uh, associated with um, the time of the year for these festivals. And um, one of the things that, uh, that has been good on our part as Messianic believers is this has become, that whole subject has become a focal point for a lot of Messianic believers as we've kind of reemerged. Uh, putting it simply, uh, we've turned back to the instruction of Moses. We're turning back to the original commandments. Oh, and we're starting to keep Sabbath again. And, oh, we're starting to keep the holidays. We just uh, completed the Passover season. We observed the Passover. Now we're counting the Omer, getting ready for the Feast of Weeks. We're looking off into the fall and anticipating the Feast of Trumpets and Yom Kippur and, and Tabernacles. And what used to be many years ago for many believers that we have in the Messianic movement that wasn't part of the language, and that certainly wasn't part of the plan for each year. But now, Messianics, as they've emerged and come forward, this is now, these times are our times now. The Moedim of the Lord, the feasts and festivals of the Lord, suddenly are our holidays, and we're starting to observe them. Even though we're not in the land, we're demonstrating, whether you realize it or not, that we're a people that want to follow the commandments of the Lord. We want to learn the things of the Lord. And we're beginning to, as best as we can, to observe those and practice those. And the, and the festivals is one of the biggest, most visible areas um, that we have uh, to demonstrate that. Which, by the way, I commend my Messianic brethren for doing that. Um, as you know, Lion and Lamb hosts a very large Feast of Tabernacles, uh, that we got going, and, and we, we, we've been part of this process of all the Messianic brethren of this generation of turning back to Moses and, and to beginning to keep these commandments that we're talking about in these portions. Now, this week's portion, 
Bihar is kind of an extension of that. But it's not a repeat of what the holiday is. It now goes into a whole nother dimension about the land of Israel. And specifically, Bihar begins to explain to us about, now you have these holidays you do every year, but let's talk about the, what happens over multiple years. And it gives the instruction about that you'll till the land for six years, and then you'll give the land its rest on the seventh year. We call it the sabbatical year. Uh, in the Hebrew, we call it the Shemitah. It's the Shemitah year that uh, every seven years we rest and so forth. And oh, by the way, this has been a major area of contention in the history of Israel. Jeremiah prophesied to the house of Judah that they were going to go into Babylonian captivity for their failure to keep that commandment. You know, that was to give the land its rest. And if you weren't going to give the land its rest, God says, I'll kick you off the land and I'll give it its rest. And the reason the house of Judah ended up going um, into Babylonian captivity, according to Jeremiah, was because of the failure to observe that commandment. Now, for us, modern messianics that we are running around today, I have been asked multiple times, when, when is the sabbatical year? You know, in the, in the, uh, over the many years. And when, when is this year the sabbatical year? Next year, you know, when, when is it? And in Israel, they kind of have a routine as to what they do. But, but if you go back and try to say, now, can you prove to me what that, that really is a sabbatical year? Can you go back in history and show me, you know, the count that there, there was a sabbatical year and then the, it counts all the way up to the present and we know exactly where it's at? And for many, many years, no. Now, there, that, that hasn't slowed some teachers down from laying claim that they know what it is. And in our modern messianic movement, we've had a variety of teachers try to say, well, this year, that year, whatever the case may be. Um, when I have been asked this question um, in, in the past, for the past several, oh, I don't know, 10 years or so, I've been honest and admitted, look, I've seen lots of different things on this. And I got to be honest with you, I just don't know. I haven't seen enough evidence to convince me that this year or next year or the year after that is one of these sabbatical years. Even though I've attempted in my own simple way to try to find some way to honor that commandment, um, I've never been convinced that we've got it worked out. Now, the Torah portion goes a step further, and it says, now that you got the sabbatical years sorted out, I want you to count seven sabbatical years in a row, that would be 49 years, and then on the 50th year, I want you to declare a year of jubilee. In the Hebrew, we call it the Yovel, Shemitah and Yovel. Uh, For us, we call it the sabbatical year and jubilee year. Um, And in this instruction, it gives us some things that we are to do that are a little bit different than what we did on the sabbatical year. On the sabbatical year, the commandment was you let the land lay fallow. Uh, You don't go out and try to cultivate it. You don't go out and try to harvest it like you did before. You just let the land 
you know, kind of rest. And if it does something on its own, it's fine. Now, if there's stuff out there, and by the way, most fields, when you harvest them, seed fall off them and they end in the ground. And by the way, on the, on the sabbatical year, some crops would sprout up. Now, it wasn't because they had been planted necessarily. It's the residual of what it is. And it was understood that this residual crop, when the land is being fallowed, not being cultivated, that if you needed something, if you needed, and it was out there, let's say there's a little patch of wheat out there, and you need some grain, that you could go out and harvest it yourself, but you can't store it. You couldn't go to the effort to try to harvest. You could get something that you needed. So, for example, the trees, the fruit. If you need some fruit, go get it, but you can't harvest it and store it and other things that it was individually to be used. And especially the poor and the traveler, this is how the poor were sustained. This is how the traveler was able to move about the land was because according to the provisions of the Torah, any of them could walk into the corners or the edges of any field and with their hands collect anything they wanted uh, for the consume. There's one particular story about Yeshua and his disciples. They Again, they were in a traveling mode. And in front of the Pharisees, the, he, the disciples walked into this field and began gathering stuff with their hands, which the Torah said that's permitted. However, the Pharisees said, oh, you're harvesting the field. And he had to fend off that accusation uh, with regard to that. Those are all part of the provisions of the law concerning how the Shemitah year was to be handled, according to the Torah, and now springboarding into the year of Jubilee, they, they went further. It was now the emancipation of all people who were in servitude. If you had been put into servitude and uh, because of debt, because you put yourself into it, on this year, on the Jubilee year, you were free. And it was possible, because it's every 50 years, essentially in every generation, there would be at least one Jubilee. We used to say the expression, if a man dies before the age of 50, the same number of years in the Yovel, his life was cut short. But if he lived to be 50, then one of the years of his life was a jubilee. So he had benefited from a jubilee. At some point in his life, emancipation had come to him and his family and so forth. Now, when this emancipation took place, it also was the freedom of the land. The land would now automatically revert back to the original families, the original tribes of those. Uh, it had been a custom that, uh, let's say you, had, you were on your tribal land, you had your portion, and let's say you decide, okay, I don't want to really work the land. These other people, they want to work the land. I, I will, I'm going to lease the land to them. You would say you'd sell it, but actually it was a lease. And the terms of the lease was you couldn't lease the land any longer than to the next jubilee. 
So let's say that you had the land since the Jubilee, you know, for seven years. Uh, then that meant that you could only uh, lease the land for the next 42 years until it, the next Jubilee that was going to come back to you. And it was a little like what we would say where you lease something. You don't actually buy something, but you can lease it for a period of time. There's a lot of uh, big shopping centers and business centers uh, where the, uh, and there's several of them here in Oklahoma, I'm sure they're in the other places, where some landowner, instead of selling the parts of land off to all of these big companies that are building either factories or big shopping centers and so forth, what he does is he sets up an agreement where each of these different companies lease the land for 100 years. And they have a 100-year lease. And then so the land remains in the ownership of that man, and it's passed down as inheritance to his heirs. And so 100 years after the lease is done, a future generation or a couple of generations, they're going to be the owners of that land. And the companies sign up for these leases because they believe before 100 years expires, that business that we have there, that company we store that we built, uh, it's probably not going to be functioning. We'll probably be doing something else anyways. And so they set up these long-term agreements. And the year of Jubilee and what God has set up here for the land of Israel is that same idea. It's a long-term look at the land because the land was to always be sustained for the generations that would follow. So that all the generations of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would have the benefit even into the future for the land of Israel. And this was the way of setting up the economics and the control so that nobody ever could come in and buy up all the land of Israel and say it was somebody else that was other than Israelite, and the Israelites lost it because it all got bought. This law prohibited that from ever happening. The land will always remain with it. Um, and most of us, when we have read the study on this, we, we have looked about this economic thing of controlling the land and how, how long can you buy it and how much and all that kind of thing. But I have discovered that there was an even greater reason for these things. And um, to my surprise, I was able to access some new information uh, in, as in preparation for this study. And I have changed my opinion with regard to when exactly is the sabbatical year, and in particular, when is the Jubilee year going to occur? And I now have an answer in this modern time. I believe I know when the sabbatical year is, and I know when the Jubilee year is. And ironically, here we are in 2022, teaching on the commandment of this, and the Lord just shared this information with me, and I just, you know, grasped it in preparation for the teaching of this year. And so let me share with you what I have discovered. Apparently, there is an interesting passage in the book of Ezekiel. I had never quite <laughs> paid that close attention to it, but Ezekiel is making reference to a certain year on the 10th of the Tishri at Yom Kippur. He's talking, and by the way, 
the Jubilee year is declared when it happens on the 10th day of Tishri at Yom Kippur. So he's making reference to the commandment of when the Jubilee would be declared, and he's, and he's saying in his day, and he makes reference to like the Jubilee that was taking place for in his day frame, and he counts back. It's like he claims it's like 14 years earlier than the day he was in. Well, the day he announces that he's in, we know world history. We know that what that year was. I mean, you can go back and with great confidence, I can tell you when that year that Ezekiel was there and what year that was on the B.C. calendar. And he says, hey, the Jubilee happened 14 years before that. Now, he also tracks another scripture, which I found absolutely fascinating, that goes all the way back when the children of Israel crossed the Jordan, came into the land, because these commandments about the Shemitah year and the Jubilee didn't start the counts. They didn't start until after Israel came into the land. And he has been able to pinpoint, and we always knew kind of near where it was, but his study, and I found it utterly fascinating, pinpointed that. So with that pinpoint of when they started the whole process of this, and then this historical date that Ezekiel happens to give us, you compare the two, you see, does it fit the 49-year cycle with the 50th year of Jubilee? Lo and behold, it does. It fits. And then we looked other historical events on other times at Yom Kippur, and we've discovered other key events that took place in the history of Israel. Those two were Jubilee years. So let's fast forward, because the calendar that we have, the A.D. calendar, we have great confidence in it, and we, so all we have to do is come with these events from the B.C. calendar, add one more year for the zero year to get into the A.D. calendar, get in the A.D. calendar of here we are in the year of our Lord, uh, 2022 A.D., So here's the conclusion. On Yom Kippur, on the 10th of Tishri, of this year in 2022, is the 70th Jubilee of the history of Israel and the Bible. It is the 120th Jubilee since the creation. Now, it's interesting because there's a verse back there in Genesis talking to Noah about telling him about the flood that was coming. And he made this interesting statement to Noah, and he said, I will not prevail with man more than 120 years. Now, most say, oh, well, that was, Noah was given the word that he had to build the ark within 120 years. That's, that's not true. It's very explicit. Noah built the ark and launched the ark 100 years after he was told. It, his ages and everything are, are specifically shared. So what's this 120? Well, one of the, the things that a lot of uh, people have concluded, and I'm one of them, 
is he was really making reference for the whole life of the earth as we understand it now, that he was only going to be able to put up with the earth and mankind for 120 jubilees for the whole earth. So this year at Yom Kippur, coincidentally, and as you know, there are no coincidences with the Holy Spirit and with the Lord, we're going to have the start of the 70th Jubilee and the 120th Jubilee of the history of the world, biblical history of the world. Now, that's kind of stunning. And, it, you know, you, you step back and you take pause. Now, how does all of that fit into all of the end-time prophecy? You know, we're, we're talking about the end of the age, the last generation, because this thing about the 70th Jubilee and, and so forth, you, you go back into the book of Daniel and it talks about 70 weeks have been decreed for the people. I mean, you know, God uses a lot of these numbers and a lot of these kinds of things to try to express what, what is getting ready to happen. So let's say this Yom Kippur really is a year of Jubilee. Now, in the course of this study here in Bihar, I also learned something new I hadn't really quite paid attention to. You know, the fact of the matter is, Israel never kept this very correctly. Over many years, Israel didn't keep the sabbatical year, historical Israel. Um, as I mentioned to you, Jeremiah said that's the reason why they were going to Babylonian captivity and they came back. And they came back with the renewed activity. They were going to keep the sabbatical year. They were going to keep the year of Jubilee. And on the first sabbatical year, Jeremiah, uh, or uh, Nehemiah, rather, is catching men who have harvested a field on that Sabbath and is bringing it back in. And Nehemiah prophesies to Israel at that point you have now brought seven times the judgment upon us. You know, we got judged for 70 years. Now we're going to get seven times the judgment because we wouldn't keep this commandment. And so there was always this great judgment and doom is coming to Israel for the failure to keep the sabbatical year and the jubilee year. But I'd never heard before until this study What's the penalty if you don't keep the jubilee year? I mean, we know that if Israel doesn't keep the sabbatical year, that's the reason we get kicked into the nations, into the hands of our enemies. What happens, though, if we willfully, we know it's the jubilee year and we don't observe it? Interestingly enough, that is the sign of the end. That's the end of your generation. That's the sign. God is now giving you notice. You fail to keep the Jubilee year. It's the end of your generation. Now, we could look back historically and see all the different judgments that God has put upon God's people because of some of this stuff. But let's talk about us. You see, if we really believe in the end times, if we really believe that we might be the last generation that sees the coming of the Lord, there is a moment where the last generation 
gets told by God, this is the end for you. Now, I have no expectation whatsoever that the world or that Israel or that God's people, even Messianics, are planning right now next to Yom Kippur, we're going to have the year of Jubilee. I think we're going to treat it exactly the way it's been treated in the past. Ignored. we ignorant. We don't know what it is. We don't know when it is. And we just don't do anything about it. Just like what I've been doing for a long time. I just don't know when it is. But there is this 70th Jubilee, and this is God's rules. And if that be so, then on this Yom Kippur of this year, God is making an announcement with regard to the year of Jubilee. This is the end of that generation. Which would signal to us that we should rapidly begin to see the end time prophecies play out to the start of the great tribulation and eventually the Lord's return. Now, I don't know all the details of how it all fits. We're not there yet. Uh, we're still in the springtime. Yom Kippur is still off in the fall. But all of a sudden, this Torah portion and it takes on great uh, significance. Now, I haven't mentioned to you the Haftor portion yet. The Haftor portion actually comes to us in Jeremiah that ties into this, Jeremiah 32. And beginning at verse 6, it's a story about Jeremiah and a member of his family who's in debt. And part of the understanding of the year of Jubilee, those that are enslaved economically, they were to be freed too. And this is, we see an application here of Jeremiah in the role of the kinsman redeemer for his family member. Now, anytime you go back into the commandments to learn about the kinsman redeemer, this is about emancipation from debt. And he, this, this Torah portion ties together with this thing about Jubilee, and we teach about it because one of the great features of Jubilee is there's going to be a great kinsman redeemer who comes and releases us from all debt. And the whole idea of the second coming of the Messiah and coming back for his saints, is to release us from the slavery of this world and to set us free to live with him freely on the land because he gets the land back. So, wow. Not only is there this discussion about the end of that generation, it's a reminder that there's a kinsman redeemer coming who has paid the debt for us so that we might be set free. And the land will be released to him again and so that we will live on the land. Those are all the themes of the second coming of the Messiah. So, 
Doesn't that sound exciting? I mean, wow. I really do hope, <laughs> my friends, that this next Yom Kippur, it really is the 70th Jubilee, and we can see the big kinsman redeemer come back to get us out of this mess and release us from the slavery of this world and free up what belongs to him. And, of course, the whole world belongs to him. Israel is just the down payment. He owns the place. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, everything in it. So I'm excited about this Torah portion, about the Hoff Torah portion, the themes that are in here. I find it absolutely fascinating this year in teaching it, this new information I found that might be able to pinpoint this, the sabbatical year and pinpoint the Yovel, and this is the right time to start explaining to people in anticipation of what's coming this fall. So, praise the Lord. I hope you got a blessing. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, to chapter 4. Hold your finger at verse 16, where our Brit Hadashah portion uh, for this week will begin. As you open the Scripture, let us turn this time over to the Lord. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for today. I thank you, Lord, for this time, this opportunity to teach and to dig into your Word once once again. Father, I thank you for the Torah portions, for the cycles of life, for your Word being alive and powerful to us each and every week that we study it. And Father, I pray that... As we dig into the New Testament for our portion this week, uh, that you would make the Word be alive. May it speak to us and encourage us in our most holy faith. We bless you, worship you, praise you, and thank you. It's in these things we pray. Amen. Uh, Our portion for this week is entitled Bahar, which uh, comes to us from uh, Leviticus chapter 25. God speaking to Moses uh, from Mount Sinai, speaking to the children of Israel, and then giving all of the instructions having to do with the year of Jubilee and the Jubilee year. Or in the Hebrew, it's the Shemitah year for for the sabbatical year or the Yovel year for the Jubilee that comes every 50 years. And the main theme of this portion all has to do with those that might be indebted to someone else, those that might be a slave or a servant to someone else, somebody who had to sell themselves into uh, service at some point in time in their life because they became down on their luck, but then the hope that's come every seven years when debts were forgiven or the jubilee year in which um, all of the land returned back to its original uh, owners, that this all had to do with liberty, freedom, all had to do with all the forgiveness of debts. Um, What God was really trying to implement here in the instructions here in Leviticus was basically an economic system that was ultimately going to reset itself every 50 years, that it's as time goes on, as the economy changes, as you have to sell possessions or sell yourself into service, whatever it might be, that there was always a hope that every 50 years, everything would reset. There was never going to be any inflation. All um, all loans, all debts, all finance was all based on what year we were in, in accordance with the sabbatical year or the year of Jubilee. That's what God was trying to implement. Ultimately, that this was a structure, a system that would bring freedom to those who lived in it, dwelt in it, and, and worked within this system. A freedom that 
should you have to uh, take out a loan or take out uh, or, or have some debt that needed to be paid, that there was a system in place that you could you could count on, you could ensure that you weren't there was, wasn't going to be too much interest on what a loan you received, or that there was always a guarantee that you'd be able to get whatever you had to sell, get it back, like the land that God was giving to the children of Israel. That's what this system was supposed to create. Unfortunately, the children of Israel never truly implemented this system. But this is what God always intended for this. So now when we dig into the New Testament, there's a few things that, uh, or passages that speak to us, perhaps in our indebtedness, in the fact that though we don't live in a system in which we have the forgiveness of debts, we do have loans and interest and all different kinds of things. And sometimes every once in a while you can pay off something that you're, uh, that you have taken out a loan for a mortgage, car payment, whatever it might be. At the same point in time, we always find ourselves and feel like we are a slave to the system, a slave to the money that we need to live to survive, money that we then need to pay for food or for shelter or something along those lines, and that many of us, especially Americans, we're all in debt in some way, some form or fashion, and that we live in this system to where we have to go and work for our food, work for our money, work for all these things. And so we all find ourselves in this system that we are in debt. What we hope for one day, and this is what we're always looking forward to when we think about retirement uh, past the working age, is that we want to get to a point to where we don't have to work anymore. Our money is taken care of, um, our needs are met, and uh, we don't have to labor for it, work anymore. We don't we no longer have to be a servant to an employer, um, and we no longer have to do those things, and we then feel free to do what we wish. That's, of course, something we all seek. We all seek that measure of freedom where we no longer have some sort of debt to pay. Well, when it comes to the spiritual things of God, of the Bible, we ourselves are indebted spiritually. At the, in the same way we might feel like a slave to, uh, to money and having to, our needs be met, we might also feel like we are a slave to sin. The mistakes that we make, the uh, evils that we still do, that p- other people do, we all are subject to it. We all have to uh, bear with it. We all have to confess our sins on a regular basis because we continue to sin. We all have to be reminded to keep ourselves holy as God is holy and to continue to live as he intended for us to live, keeping his commandments and his, and his instructions. And so when it comes to the idea of any concepts of liberty or freedom, those of us that are believers, we have a spiritual definition to that word just as much as we might have a physical definition to that word of being free from the systems of the world, if you will. Our passage, which uh, is a traditional passage that is done for this Torah portion, comes to us from Luke chapter 4. This is when our Messiah Yeshua was in the area of his hometown, that where he was in Nazareth. And it came to the Sabbath time that uh, it was his custom. He went to the synagogue, and he went to where the Jews were, and they were 
worshiping the Lord, reading from the scripture. And our Messiah comes to a synagogue here on the Sabbath day here in Nazareth. And this is what transpires. Verse 16 of Luke chapter 4. So he came to Nazareth when, where he had been brought up. And it was his custom. He went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, stood up and read, and he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me, to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. This was quoting from Isaiah chapter 61 to where these words um, very much carry those same themes as I spoke of our Torah portion about the acceptable year of the Lord to proclaim liberty to the captives and to set liberty to those who are oppressed. And he read this book, uh, verse 20, he closed the book, he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in you your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? This was Nazareth, of course. They know who Joseph is. He grew up here. His father was still around. And then he, they, they sit here and they marvel at the fact that this young man you know, the, comes walking in. He starts reading these words, stating these things with the boldness that the Messiah spoke with. And they were astounded. Not believing that it's all like, is this, is this Joseph's son? This is what Yeshua said to them after that. Verse 23, he said to them, You will surely say this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever you have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. And he said, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months. And there was a great famine throughout all the land, but to none of them was Elijah sent except for uh, Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them were cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. So all those who were in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city. And they led him to the brow of the hill on which the city was built and they, that they might throw him down over the cliff. Then, passing through the midst of them, he went on his way. Very interesting story that we have here. One, we have the quote from Isaiah that he's talking about liberty to be proclaimed to those who are oppressed and those who are captive. But then we have him speaking to the people there and speaking these very interesting words, talking about what has come in the past and that certain many things came to pass in a certain way that maybe people didn't think about or didn't, didn't expect, whatever it might be. And and that whatever he said to them infuriated them, caused them to be mad at him, so much so that they grabbed him and they were getting ready to throw him off of a cliff. And then you have this very interesting circumstance where they're about to do this, yet our Messiah just walks in the midst of them and just walks upon, walks along his way. Now, the main lesson that we is here is the fact that 
A prophet is not uh, accepted in his own country, in his own hometown. That when he goes and speaks, usually those that knew him, grew up with him, that somebody he then goes and, and, and says a few things, teaches, suddenly becomes a teacher, suddenly becomes a great man. Suddenly the people that knew him from his past, they're like, uh, no, he's still the same old guy. He's not, oh, he might be saying these things, but I grew up with the guy. He used to talk like this. And now he's saying all these things about the Lord and all this. And it's like, nah, I, I can't believe it. The, the concept, the, the physical um, situation in which somebody who you return back to the place where you came from and then suddenly there's no respect to be had, this is actually a very natural phenomenon. Whenever you go and you say something to somebody that knew you when you were younger, they always in their own mind will picture you like you were not like you are now. And see, that's the thing with a prophet. Sometimes a prophet is called, you know, in their old age by the Lord and says, hey, go to this place, go and say these things. And you might start speaking the word of the Lord and you never had a history of speaking the word of the Lord prior to that moment. So if you meet somebody that knew you before you start speaking the word of God, they're only going to remember who you were in the past. I mean, isn't this just Joseph's son? Who the heck is this guy? who's right here in the synagogue, and he's reading these things, and he's saying these things. The phenomenon's very natural, in fact. I know for me, if you know, I'm a younger guy. Um, I work in ministry. If somebody knew me when I was a lot younger and all the things that I used to do and things I used to say, um, they, it's harder for them to respect me as a teacher or a minister. And same, you might have a similar experience as well. So that's the phenomenon that's going on here. But it's very interesting if you think about it, Back to the, our Torah portion, back to what we were talking about with the idea of the Torah portion, the fact that when somebody had to sell their land to a stranger or somebody else or a brother or maybe even a foreigner, and then the year of Jubilee would come or is coming at some point in time to where you're going to get that land back, but, it, but where we are right now, it's not yours. You, you had to sell it. Now, what happens when you, being the one that sold it, you then walk back into your land, which is yours by possession. At the year of Jubilee, it'll belong to you, but you don't currently live there. Do you gain the same respect as the landowner when you go walking into their midst? The answer is actually no, because you sold it. You sold it. Now, you might get it back in you know, 20 years from now when the year of Jubilee comes, but it's not yours now. So when you come walking in, you can't walk in with the same authority if you're trying to then be in that place. This is like almost the same concept that's going on here. The, the Nazareth, this was, this was the hometown of our Messiah. And he's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He, in fact, he, with him being the Son of God and God in the flesh, the whole earth belongs to him. Surely Nazareth is part of that. And he walks in, and it's all like, this should be his place, his hometown. But then he goes and he says just a few words, just a few things, teaching a few things in the synagogue, and then the people want to throw him out. This is the concept that we, that we see and we face, where with the fact that if you ever do have some kind of possession or some kind of, you, you own a business, and then you end up selling that business to someone else, or you end up giving a house or a piece of property or something to someone else, you then you, you don't walk in with the same authority. It's a, it's a natural phenomenon. Now, if there is the year of jubilee, if there is if there's some sort of system in which or or contract in which that 
thing still does belong to you, and at some point you're going to take it back. Well, when that time comes, then you can have all the authority that you wish to have over that property. But if you've sold it, you're not allowed to do that. And this is the, this is the phenomenon that takes place with the human condition. And so we can see this lesson, we can learn from it, and apply that to our own lives. If you ever have had any of the circumstances that I've described, you can know and recognize this is just how, how, this is how things are. Now, we don't observe the, the year of Jubilee, so therefore when we sell something now, you sell a car, you sell a house, you sell something right there, it, it's gone. There's no guarantee, there's no plan for you to, for that property to be returned back to you. But the thing we always, of course, have to remember is this. We're in a place where we don't belong. We're exiled into the nations. This is not the land of our ancestors, the land of our forefathers. This is not the land that God promised to each and every one of us. We belong in the promised land as sons and daughters of Abraham, as children of Israel, adopted in or naturally born. We belong to the land that God gifted to our ancestors. Not in this place that scattered into the nations, into the many places where we have and have gone to. This is not ultimately where we belong. We know where we belong. We belong in the presence of our Father, our Heavenly Father. We belong with God in His presence. That's where we need to be. We were created in Him, of Him, through Him, and, and in the image of Him. And that's where we belong in the presence of God. Now, in our exile, we have found the Lord through the process and, and his teachings, and, and we, have, we, we have come to know who we belong to and who our God is in the Word. And in fact, it specifically said that in the Word, that we would find God even in our exile. But ultimately, we are looking forward to some future time in which God will take us and give us the land of our inheritance and give us a piece of property, and it will be the greatest liberty and freedom we've ever received because it will be a gift straight from the Lord Almighty, straight from our Heavenly Father given to us. We look forward to that time. In the meantime, we have an economic system that we need to figure out how to adapt to and work with, knowing fully that God had an original intention for what our economics should actually look at, look like. The next passage that I want to go to for our tour portion of Bihar is 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This is, um, once again, another traditional reading that is done, um, specifically at verse 17. Very interesting passage here. This all has to do with just what I, what I was just saying about when we have, no matter where we are, in exile, through our journeys in life, we have found God in many different circumstances. Some of us are more well-off financially, yet we find God in our teachings, instructions. We find the right evangelist that causes us to turn our life over to the Lord. But then you also have the poor among us that receive their Bible, and, and suddenly they walk in their belief and following God. And then whatever station of life you might be in, there's many of us who have found God, found a testimony of Messiah, found the gospel message, however it's been shared to us, or whatever caused us to make that confession of faith and to believe in God and believe in Him, we did it in many different stations of life. Now listen to the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 at verse 17, where he says this, 
But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordain in all the churches. Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not become circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. But if you, but if you can, be made free. Rather, use it. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freed man. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were, brought, you were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, let each one remain with God in the state in which he was called. Now, there's a lot of different layers that we could look at this. A lot of different things that, you know, some people might interpret a certain way that, you know, once if, if you're a free man, then you suddenly uh, become a servant of the Messiah, servant of Christ. And then you go and walk this. And it's, it then says, you know, it's all like, well, then don't then go uh, become a slave to man because you've been made free. It's like, okay, but that doesn't mean that it's like, okay, well, I have God now, so now I'm not supposed to serve anyone else at all. Well, in ministry, in our heart and in our calling, I would agree with that spiritually in principle, but I wouldn't take that literally to then somehow say, oh, well, yeah, you're not supposed to have to work at all, and so you might not have to have another job to be able to feed your family and take care of your wife and kids or to have a house to pay for. That's not, I, I wouldn't take that, some of that passage literally in that way. But what's very interesting is that those, that last line where it says, each one remain with God in that state in which he was called. Like I said before, we, just because you are, you might be the lowly of the brethren, and then suddenly you find God. God is not suddenly this going to gift you with all the prosperity that you possibly could have because you now believe in God. And so that then suddenly you're going to become free and that now that you believe in God, it's going to change your station of life. In the same way that if you are well off, you're blessed in what God has given to you. You're not supposed to in belief is that, okay, now I'm going to sell everything and I'm going to go become a, some poor among me because that's now what God calls me to do to, to chasten myself and, 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 and martyr myself because I'm supposed to sell these things away. That's not really what I believe God wants anyone to do in the first place. Now, if you have a lot of blessing, you should be generous. Give to the poor, help those around you, help those that are in need. But that's not for you to then suddenly change your station of life because you have found God. Now, this is where it gets really kind of interesting for the Messianic movement. Because where we've been messianic here at this ministry at Lion and Lamb for many years, we teach Torah and the commandments, keeping of his instructions according to the law of Moses, as well as maintaining our faith in Yeshua the Messiah. There's a lot of people that come to understand more things about the Lord, whether the truth that they're actually of Israel and that they're in covenant with God and should keep the commandments, 
But then while they're in a Christian church, you know, that's not exactly what they're taught. And so some of the Messianic movement, its standard practice has been, well, once you find out more about the Torah and the commandments, well, then you need to leave your church and you need to then go and go join a Messianic fellowship or find a Messianic Bible study. And you need to leave where you're at uh, because, you know, it's something that's not compatible. This is perhaps the way the Messianic movement has grown, but I almost believe that this is not the way that it should have been. Wherever we might be in our station of life, in where we walk, that, yeah, if, look, if, you, if you're going to a Christian church, suddenly you start keeping the Sabbath and the commandments. Now, if they kick you out of that church, well, okay, fair enough. There's not a lot you can do if they kick you out. At the same point in time, that doesn't mean that we're supposed to upend our entire life and somehow change our entire station of life because we now have found more truth about God and His Word. Now, we do our best, of course. We want to keep the commandments of God. We want to keep the Sabbath on the right day. We want to start eating kosher. We want to do all of the, keep the right holidays that are according to the biblical tradition and according to the commandments of God, I should say. But at the same point in time, Paul is, is calling us to stay where we are in the state in which we found him. That doesn't mean that suddenly you become, figure out that you're a child of God and it's all like, oh, okay, well, I'm not circumcised, so I better go figure out how to go get circumcised right away so that I remain a, as a part of, of, so I am a part of Israel, like physically, with, with that sign. And it's like Paul is saying exactly to not do that. It's like where you have been found, you go and then you do your best from that point on. And see, this is, a, this is actually a tough passage for many people who are in the Messianic movement because I know many people have upended their entire life and changed their station of life because of something new that they found in the Scripture. But Paul was cautioning, cautioning, cautioning us with these words. Now, I'm not here to, to say that, you know, one sort of blanket instruction for all people, everybody's circumstance is different, and everybody perhaps made whatever change that was necessary, whether changing congregations or interactions with family or whatever you had to do in the course of your faith. I'm not here to say that you did something right or wrong, but I would point us to these words from the Apostle Paul for us to understand that whether we find ourselves indebted or as a slave, or whether we find ourselves as somebody who is well off, that we are to, when we find God, maintain, occupy until he comes with whatever area of life God has given you to serve. Not that you're supposed to then immediately become a zealot and, and, and change your lifestyle entirely, you know, quit your job and then go walk in a different path but to continue to serve wherever God has placed us. Because I believe truly what it is, is it's God's perfect plan for using his servants, his people, and all of Israel, adopted or native-born, wherever they might be, so that they bring the gospel message to wherever they are. Take it a job, for instance, that you feel like you have to quit your job because now you know God. What if your purpose is to, or your assignment is to bring the Messiah, to the people who are in that job? What if your assignment is to bring the gospel message to the church that you're in when you found the instructions and the commandments? What if your assignment is to wherever you are, wherever you serve, whatever your station of life is, you're now supposed to be the priest of that area, as Israel is a kingdom of priests, that you bring the message of God to the station of life and to those around you. 
See, that's what I really think is what's supposed to happen here, is that we are to be a witness to all of those around us, because we are in service to the Lord. We are in service to our God who saved us, who redeemed us, who's done everything for us. And when we find the truth in his word and his instructions and his commandments, and when we find the testimony of Messiah, and then we live our life in accordance with his words and in those ways, it's now our job to bring those things to wherever God has called us. Each and every one of us can be a prophet of God, so to speak, that if we're, the place where we are is our first assignment, the place where we're supposed to bring that message. Now, what we read from Luke chapter 4 was about the Messiah going back to Nazareth, and there he was preaching, and maybe one of his first assignments It's like, yeah, go back to Nazareth, Nazareth and teach the people there. Well, they didn't like it. They might be rejected there. Okay, well, if you're rejected there and they kick you out, well, then okay. Well, now you have a new place and a new journey on where you are going. Because your your purpose was to share God with those people. Well, they kicked you out. Then, you know, the Messiah, you know, I don't know if the Messiah learned this, but at least his experience taught us that, hey, even in your own hometown, you might get kicked out. Even in your old church, you might get kicked out if you start then following the commandments and the things that we teach here at this ministry. You can almost say the same thing happened with the children of Israel because they were in Egypt. See, the whole goal of the, of the Exodus was that God was going to introduce himself to the entire world, namely the Egyptians. Here's the God of the Hebrews. He's going to come. He's got quite a bit of power here. He's going to bring all of these judgments so that you, Pharaoh, might know the Lord. Well, guess what? The Egyptians didn't come to faith in the God of Israel. Instead, what they did, they kicked him out. They kicked out the children of Israel. So this is just still the same pattern by which many other people who have found God is. But here's the thing. You yourself don't exile yourself. You wait for the, for the time in which if you get removed from the place or the station of life that you're in because of your newfound faith or newfound religious practices, well, then if it comes to that, okay, they kick you out. But at the same point in time, you yourself need to remain where you are so that the first assignment that you have as a new believer is to bring that word to those who are immediately around you. Even though you might still be a a slave to man, um, and just like we are spiritually slaves to sin, we then have to recognize that when we find our faith in God, we then come to serve Him. Last passage I want to go to is Romans chapter 6. At verse 15, it reads this. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Certainly not, God forbid. This is about the, the fact that, you know, now that we have grace, now that we have a new master, now that liberty and that freedom that we have, we can do whatever we want, right? No, wrong, God forbid. But do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one's slave whom you obey, whoever, um, whoever of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But God be thanked that though you were slaves to sin, yet you obeyed from the heart and that form of doctrine to which you are now delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness." I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. 
See, the whole thing about us, you know, being in service to somebody or being a slave to something, what happens is your debt is paid. That doesn't mean that you're then free to go do whatever you want after that. No, what you actually now become is a servant or a slave to though to that person who's paid your debt because it's them you owe your life to. This is the concept of uh, redemption, so to speak, basically, where the, the fact that our Messiah who is near of kin to us, proven to us by Matthew chapter 1, who is, a, who is a son of Abraham, that he can come along, he can pay our debt that we owe, to which now we reckon with him who paid our debt. The debt has not been wiped away, it's simply changed hands. Not to a slaver or to some foreigner or to some stranger that we owe, you know, that we owe our, our life and our payment and our work toward, but no, now the Messiah has paid our debt so that we now serve him. We're still a slave. We're just not a slave to sin any longer. We're now a slave to righteousness. We're now a slave to doing what is right in the eyes of God so that we might serve him for the path of righteousness and the path of holiness. And guess what? If our master, who is our the heavenly father, the king of the universe, he then calls us and says, you go do this. You go to this place. You go and teach my word, my gospel to that people. Or you go and be a righteous person, be a beacon or a sign or a light in a dark place for others to see. That is your calling to bring my message into the world. And in fact, that's honestly, that's what each and every one of our purpose is as believers in God, is to bring his light to the dark places, to the dark corners of this earth, and to bring Messiah into the world. It's the exact same purpose that we all have. Bring the gospel message and your Messiah and be an image of God here on earth. So when people see you, they see God. That's what a servant was to do. That's what a servant, a servant represented their master. When you saw the servant, you're like, no, you mistreat that servant. It's as if you're mistreating the master. And the master, who is a good master, will come and defend his servant. This is how God, this is how God rules over us, as we are all slaves to him, slaves to righteousness. For someone who has our best interests in mind, he is the one who is worth serving. So we give all of our debt and our allegiance and our loyalty to him. He pays it, and we now serve him. This is what we are to do. We are all in this system of being slaves, whatever situation or station of life we've been placed into, whether it was mistakes of our ancestors that got themselves kicked out of the land, whether it was the mistake of your father who had a bad business deal, so you had to move to a small town and grow up poor, or whether, you know, your family has been blessed and is prosperous and you have a decent inheritance and you get to live. No matter where you are, the purpose is the same. You serve your master who is the king of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth. You are his servant and you are to serve him and fulfill your purpose to bring his word and his message into the place where you are. That's the job. That's where we're supposed to be. One day there will be a year, a time, a year of proclamation of freedom, liberty, some jubilee year as God originally intended it to be, and we all get all of our debts forgiven. We all get to go back to the land where we belong, and we all get to be in the presence of God. One day that will come. In the meantime, occupy until he comes and be a light and be a service to him in whatever station of life you are in. Amen.
Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for today. I thank you, Lord, for this teaching, for this Brit Hadashah teaching, Lord, and we thank you for your word. Father, I pray that this message was encouraging to the brethren. Father, may we take application to our lives. May we be your hands and feet here on earth in service to the building of your kingdom. Father, we love you. We praise you and we thank you. We thank you for meeting us wherever we might be, whatever station of life we're in, whatever struggle what it was or whatever uh, time of blessing or triumph that caused us to know you and to believe in you. Father, we thank you for every testimony that you have given to each and every one of us. And Father, may we fulfill your your purpose, your plan for our lives, whatever assignment we have been given, Lord, uh, Father, may we serve it wholeheartedly and may we serve you as slaves of your righteousness. We bless you, worship you, praise you, and thank you for this time and for this teaching. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of Yeshua the Messiah, the Prince of Peace. Shalom. Shalom.